so you know, I didn't, I didn't come up with that. If anybody knows straight out of Compton, I'm straight out of Carlsbad, and rapping with Ross is not where I'm actually going to rap because I'm not good at rapping, but uh, we call it that anyway because there's multiple meanings of the word rap, right? Stuart, like rapping is having a conversation uh, also. And so this is one of, uh, I think this is the third time we've done this. Is it this? I think it's the second time in an actual church service. And I think we did it one time, maybe on a Sunday evening or Saturday evening or something like that, about a year ago, where we just had conversations about church, and I tried to answer as many questions as I can. So last week, <clears throat> index cards were passed out to everyone, and if somebody had a question about theology or the Bible or church or something like that, uh, they wrote the questions down, and then they were the cards were kept, and, and I was out this week, and so Kathy... Uh, typed out all of the questions and emailed them to me, and then I curated them into groups so I could try to get to as many questions as possible. And here we go. Let's pray before we start this, because uh, you all have asked some really difficult questions. The first time we did this, it was really just kind of fluffy. It was, it was easy. Now I feel like um, I'm going to have to put my education to use. And so thank you, I guess. Let's pray. God, this morning, as we seek answers, we seek you. More than um, the knowledge of you, like on, on an intellectual level, Lord, we want to know you. We want to feel your presence. We want to be close to you. We want to know, God, that the way we live our lives is making a difference in the world and is increasing your kingdom. Lord, we want to know that your love for us changes us and that we can share that with other people. God, we want to know you. We want to be made whole and we want to love holy. All of these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we broke these down, Kathy broke these down for me into like theology questions, questions specific to Morningstar, and then some people were asking about my elk hunt last week. I won't answer those questions because that's kind of boring to people who aren't interested in that. And so uh, if you're interested in my elk hunt last week, or this last week, talk to me after church. I would love to show pictures and tell stories, but um, that this is not the place for that, so... The first question that I felt like was a quick answer was this one. It's about observing the Sabbath, and it says, Sundays have become very busy, but spent at church with family. Is this still observing the Sabbath? What do you think? If, if Sundays are busy, and you come to church and you spend time with family, is that still observing the Sabbath? I, those of you who are saying yes, I think so too. Here's the thing. Jesus said that the Sabbath was created for us, not us for the Sabbath. So we're not ruled by the rules of Sabbath, right? Like, there are no rules saying this is Sabbath and this isn't. Whatever you need to do to restore your soul and prepare yourself for the week to come, that is Sabbath. And so if you come to church on Sunday mornings and you spend it with friends and family, but then after that, you have a hundred things that you have to get done. As long as you feel restored after a day, then you are practicing Sabbath. 
I would say. I would also say this, that practicing Sabbath is a subversive act. Because advertisers and um, folks who are wanting us to spend our money are wanting us to stay busy, right? Because if we're busy, we feel like we have more value and we feel like we can earn more money and therefore we can go and we can spend more money. And to do something that says like, you know what, today I'm turning all of that off. I'm not playing that game today. Today I don't have to be busy. Today I can just take a deep breath and be with my friends and family and take care of the things I need to take care of. That's really kind of subversive. And it's a different way of living. And so I would encourage all of you to not stress out about the rules of what Sabbath is or isn't, but do what you need to do to take care of your own soul. At least one day a week. It may not be Sundays. So for young families, Sunday mornings are hectic because this is how a lot of days work. You wake up on Monday morning. This, let me just tell you how it works at my house. We wake up on Monday morning really early because Michelle's the kind of teacher that gets to school basically before the sun comes up. And Emery is the kind of kid who volunteers for every possible thing there is to do at her school. And so in fifth grade, she has to be at school super early because she's the, the anchor woman for their live news broadcast that is in place of announcements. So she gets to school super early. Michelle gets to school super early. Elise and I get up about the same time that they do. And then it's a hustle. Are you almost done? Are you ready? Where's your other shoe? Like you would think at 14, they would be able to find both shoes, you know? And it's just like this constant hustle, 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 hurry, hurry, hurry. And then it's like, oh my gosh, the traffic coming out of the parking lot was crazy. I should have made her walk down the hill because we've got women's Bible study today or we've got men's Bible study today. And it's just kind of this big hustle. And then school ends and we have to go to ballet or we have to go to volleyball practice or we have this thing or that thing and we're just kind of hustling all over. Saturday mornings, you wake up and there's a volleyball game that you have to get around. Where's your other shoe? Why didn't you keep everything in your bag? It's this big hustle again. And then Sunday mornings, it's all, I'm not home when it happens, but it happens again on Sunday mornings. You'll see when you see them come in through the red doors, there's like this look of frantic anxiety on Michelle's face. And sometimes the girls are all splotchety because they're mad at each other because somebody had another somebody's shoe underneath their bed or something. Sundays can be hectic also, but I think if we stress out about the rules of it, we're taking away the possibility of it actually being a Sabbath. And so relax. It's okay. You're, you're doing good. The second question uh, is more difficult. Can you better explain Morningstar's view on the concept of salvation? So this is going to be cover a couple of questions because the next question is this. To me, living a life of salvation means living in the present, knowing God's love for us, and not trying to get a ticket into heaven based on belief. And then how can I help others experience the love God has for us so that they will seek to live a righteous life? Can we take the term salvation out of church? This comes from my brother's comment. I don't need to go to church to hear them tell me I'm going to hell. As a follower of Jesus, I want to help change the perception of Christians. So these are two questions about salvation. So I want to say specifically Morningstar itself does not have a single concept of salvation. We, we are part of the United Methodist Church, and the United Methodist Church 
has a concept of salvation, but what you need to understand is when we start talking about salvation, we're talking about what is called atonement theories, right? And, there, and, and notice I had a plural at the end. There are atonement theories of how the atonement of our souls happens. So the one that is most common to us is called substitutionary atonement. It works like this. I sin, right? We all sin. We confess it every Sunday together. We are sinners in need of God's grace. And because there's really nothing that we can do to get over that, God came to earth because in the form of Jesus because God loved us so much. And God sacrificed God's self because blood had to be spilled as an atonement for our sins. And so Jesus died in our place because the wages of sin is death. And somebody has to die because of sin. And so Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for us. I used to explain it like I would get two school books and I would put a book cover over one. Remember book covers? I used to make them out of paper grocery bags. And I'd put a book cover over one and I would say Ross's life. And then I would put a book cover over the other one and I would say Jesus' life. And I would hold them up and I would say, this is my life. And I would go through it and I would say, oh my gosh, it's just full of sin and destruction and foolish things. And then I would go over to Jesus' book and I would say, this is perfect. Nothing, no sin, only love, only hope, only grace. And then I would take the book cover off of Jesus and the book cover off of mine and I would switch them. Substitutionary atonement. And I would say, now when God picks up the book of Ross, God is actually looking at the book of Jesus and sees me as perfect and whole because Jesus made that sacrifice. So that's one theory of atonement. But there are theories. There's one called Christus Victor, which means that Christ came to earth, God came to earth in the form of Jesus to show us what our sin does. Jesus came to show us how to live a perfect life, a life full of grace and hope and love, and to set the record straight about this is the way that literally the world will be saved. Because left to our own devices, we may punch a button and blow ourselves off the face of it. And what did we do with that knowledge? Well, we couldn't handle it, and so we murdered the person who came to show us. But we don't win in the end because Christ died, rose from the dead. That's called Christus Victor, Christ the Victor. So there are atonement theories that the Methodist Church ascribes to. You get to pick which one you choose to believe. Right, Marge? But for me to answer the question about Living a life of salvation means living in the present, knowing God's love for us, and not trying to get a ticket into heaven based on belief fits really well into the ancient Near Eastern understanding of belief. Missouri is the show-me state, right? Anybody from Missouri in here? Well, in the ancient Near East, they lived like Missourians. Is that what they call people from Missouri? They live like Missourians. They, they would say, don't tell me what you believe. I don't even need to hear it. Like, you don't have to say a word. I'll watch you, and you will show me what you believe. We somehow have taken that idea and made it a mental ascent. Like, if we can get our brains to believe something, then salvation happens. 
There's a theologian named Pete Rollins who has a famous sermon in which he says, I support slavery. And I deny the resurrection. And he's really controversial and he stirs that stuff up on purpose so that people will read his books more and watch his YouTube videos more. But he says, I deny the resurrection every single time that I say a hateful word about another person. And I deny the resurrection every time that I walk past a homeless person and look at them with, with hatred. And I deny the resurrection any time that I am about myself and not about all of us, about the common good. And he says, but I affirm the resurrection any time that I forgive my neighbor or seek forgiveness. And I affirm the resurrection any time. And he goes through this whole thing about how this is the way you affirm the resurrection. And he says, I support slavery because I buy clothes made by slaves. He's getting to the idea that we can believe one thing, but it's what we do and how we live that actually reflects what our belief is, right? So this person, whoever you are, you may be in the room that says living a life of salvation means living in the present, knowing God's love for us and not trying to get a ticket into heaven based on belief. Yes and no. Because your beliefs should lead to certain actions. That's what James writes about. Faith without works is a dead faith. So how do we know what we believe? We watch each other. And we watch ourselves. But it is about here and now, at least as much, if not more so, than there and then. Does that make sense? Because if we're living here and now for the there and then, then the here and now, we miss out on it. And, and life is about life. Life is not about death. Which gets to another question that somebody asked, which was, oh, where'd it go? If when we die, we go to heaven, why live? What is the point of living on earth? If I had the answer to what is the point of life, I would be rich. So I'll never find that answer because I'll never be rich. But here's the thing. I, the Westminster Confession says this. Essentially, the point of life is to seek God and love God forever. That's it. And plain and simple. Seek God and love God forever. That is the point of life. And, and if we're living our lives now about what happens after we die, then we miss out on that. And we miss out on a big part of what life really is. I mean, a big part of it. Because if, if we're not seeking God and we're not trying to love God, then our relationships can get messed up, right? Like, if, if, if we're just living our lives for ourselves, then how is it that I can be in right relationship with the people who live under the roof with me and next door to me and across the street from me and the people that I live and work and play with? And so, I would say that life is not about heaven or hell. 
Life is about life here and now and making this place as much like heaven as possible. Explain the word image in scripture in the scripture made in the image of God. So whoever wrote this question was referring to Genesis chapter 1, the first creation narrative where the author of Genesis says, and let us create man in our own image. In the image of God we were created is what scripture says. So the Hebrew word for create in that phrase is tzelem. It's T Z E L E M. And it means create. But the idea is in Genesis chapter 1 that there's, because if you start reading Genesis 1 and you start reading Genesis 2, God is like up above and high and lofty, right? But we have this understanding, as did the Hebrew people of the ancient Near East, that God is with us. God is here amongst us. So in the, in the creation narrative, right after it's the story of Adam and Eve, and what do they find God doing? Walking through the garden, calling out for them. So there's an idea that God is here and amongst us. And so to say that God created us in God's image is to help create this idea that God is with us somehow. It's not to say that God looks like a human or that humans look like God. It's to say that somehow God is low and here with us in some form or fashion. I don't know that that was a good answer. If you're in the room and you ask that question and that wasn't satisfactory to you, speak now or after the service, but don't forever hold your peace. I love talking about this stuff, so... And then I, I need to address the second part of the one question. How can I help experience the love of God has for us so that they will seek to live a righteous life? Can we take the term salvation out of church? No, we cannot take the term salvation out of church. It's a big part of who we are. Because if we leave that term out, what is the point of what we're doing? Like we're trying to save the earth in the way of Jesus, right? We're, Jesus came to save all of us by showing us how to live. And so if we have faith that Jesus knows and was perfect and has a full understanding of what it's like and we follow in that way, early Christians were called followers of the way. It was about action. If we have that kind of faith, then salvation cannot be taken out of the church. But... As a follower of Jesus, I want to help change the perception of Christians. So the Methodist pastors in town get to breakfast, go to breakfast every Wednesday together. There's a website called Mission Insight that all Methodist churches have access to. It's these in-depth demographic studies. And so Darren and I were looking at some of the Mission Insight studies for Las Cruces. The number one reason people don't go to church in Doniana County is what? Anybody have any ideas? Christians are seen as being too judgmental. John Wesley said, be rigorous in your judgment of yourself, 
but gracious in your judgment of others. I think there's so much wisdom in that phrase. Rigorous in your judgment of yourself, but gracious in your judgment of others. But I also think that if we live less judgmental lives and we laugh more because we're also seen as being super serious and not having any fun, and we use our manners like our parents taught us to, which is say please and thank you and I'm sorry, don't chew with your mouth open. If we're generous with our time and our talent and our treasure, that starts to change the narrative. Like, you have to live it out. So, when the person has 23 items at the express checkout lane, get in line behind them and don't complain about it. But don't be the person with 23 items. Make sure you have 15 or less. And bananas, a bundle of bananas count as one, by the way. (laughs) And like Stuart said, take somebody else's cart and put it in the thing. Like, if we would just start living more kind lives and being rigorous in the way we judge ourselves and generous in the way that we judge other people, I think that changes the narrative and the perception. And Sean is showing me the red card which doesn't mean I cussed up here. It just means that I've got to keep moving on. So there are some Morningstar specific questions and I wanted to get to one of them. It comes up every single time, every time. I mean, without a doubt, I know this question is going to come up. And the question is this, why do we only do communion once a month? And my answer is, I don't know. That's the tradition. It's not just the tradition of Morningstar. Somehow, somewhere, it became the tradition of the Methodists to have communion once a month. And that's actually going against the founder of nerdy Methodism. John Wesley said, every time you gather, every opportunity you have when you're together, have communion together. Like the actual sacrament, the bread and the wine, like do that thing every time you get together. And, and I've heard people say, well, if we did it every time, like it would lose its meaning. And I always want to say, I, I don't think so, because every single time that Emery comes up to me and hugs me and says she loves me, it means something. And I don't think God is ever going to be like, oh, they did that last week. It doesn't mean anything anymore. It means something. It means something to God when God's children show their love for God, just like it means something to me when my children show their love to me. So here's my proposal to you all. I would like to have this service have communion every Sunday. We would shorten the sermon a little bit, and you're like, hallelujah, thank you for that. We'd shorten the sermon a little bit. We would add extra layers of prayer in, and we would have communion every single Sunday. And I'm thinking we would try it for a period of time, maybe during Advent or maybe like October through Advent. And then after that, we would revisit, and we together could make a decision, like do we want to keep doing this or, or not? And, and, and do the thing that we do where we have conversations and share with one another what it is that we're thinking about. But I think, I think this. One of the things that, that I am afraid is happening, not just here, but in general across Methodism, is that we've, Methodist churches have this fear 
Because every time that pastors go to annual conference, we hear, the last time the United Methodist Church grew worldwide in numbers was 1968. We are a denomination in decline. And I want to say, like, who cares, man? I don't, I don't think Jesus cares if we have 5,000 people or 500 people in here. I think what Jesus cares is that the people that are in this room are deeply passionate about Jesus. John Wesley said, the way you grow people, because you know he used to go outside of the coal mines and preach, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people would come to hear him. He must have been able to yell really loud because they said there would be fields full of people to hear him preach. And somebody asked him, how do you get a crowd? And he said, I just set myself on fire and people come to watch me burn. Well, I think the way that we get on fire is we do the things that draw us into the Spirit of God. And when we get drawn into the Spirit of God... It, we can't help it. It's like we've set ourselves on fire and people come to watch us burn and they see us being rigorous in our judgment of ourselves but gracious in our judgment of others. They see us laughing and having fun and they see us offering hope and help to the world around us and they, it's contagious. People want to be part of that.